Hello and welcome back to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview Podcast. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Rishi Desai, who's an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an associate epidemiologist in the Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which I think is in Boston. Uh, welcome, Rishi. Great to have a chance to discuss this with you today, and thank you for giving up your time. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Excellent. So can you just start off by two things, telling us a little bit about yourself, your interests, and what you've been working on, and then maybe briefly what COVID-19 has affected your practice and uh, how things are going in Boston? Yeah, great. So, uh, so as, as you said, I am located here in Boston, uh, assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a pharmacoepidemiologist um, in the Brigham and Women's Hospital. So my research surrounds uh, looking at medication safety and effectiveness once they hit the market. Um, so we use routinely collected healthcare data, data from insurance records, for example, or electronic medical records uh, to look for uh, adverse events that may um, may not be seen in, in, uh, in trials because they run for a short period of time and they have sample size limitations. So that's where my, my research is focused on um, and your second question is uh, about the COVID-19. So thankfully things are on the mend, I hope, uh, in the US. And so we are actually uh, seeing uh, more and more people out and about and vaccination is going really well. So hopefully uh, we'll have a better summer than, than the last, last one. Um, but you never know with the variants and stuff. So, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So today we're talking about your paper recently published in the Rheumatology, that's the British Journal. It's a population-based cohort study. It's looking at a very uh, topical issue, the JAK inhibitors, and in this instance, VTE, which is uh, one of those issues we want your opinion later, whether this is a class effect or a JAK2 inhibition effect. So be prepared. Um, associated, VTE associated with tofacitinib in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so this is called the risk of VTE associated with Tofrin specifically in patients with RA population-based cohort study. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you picked this particular area and just a bit of background about the Jackson VTE? Right, so, uh, so we have been actually interested in this research question for a number of years. So this is our second publication, sort of the updated analysis. Our first, uh, analysis was actually uh, um, presented in 2018, back in 2018 at the American College of Rheumatology meeting as a late-breaking abstract. That was our first analysis, uh, but based on really uh, early data, which uh, limited our uh, precision of our estimates, uh, that paper was later published in Arthritis and Rheumatology in 2019, uh, and then uh, but that only had information on uh, 2,000 tofacitinib uh, users because, because at the time the drug was not that, that widely used. And whenever we uh, use these population-based uh, cohorts, uh, we have a, a few years of lag because data roll in a little bit late. And so we only had data up to, I think, 2015 or 2016 at the time. Uh, and so we were not able to sort of conclusively um, uh, demonstrate uh, a, a risk or, or no 
risk in that in that study. And so we decided to look at this question again when we had more data accumulating over the years where tofacitinib use has actually slightly increased in the US. Uh, and we have now data up to 2018 for, for one of the databases. Um, and uh, and so we, we decided to look into this question again. And uh, why is this important? It's a question that's been on many people's mind um, for, for many years now. So first observation was, uh, as you and your listeners will, will, will know, uh, from baricitinib uh, trial, there was a four milligram dose which had this uh, signal of, of a number of uh, extra events, if you will, for venous thromboembolism, which actually led the uh, FDA to not approve that particular dose. And, and they went ahead with the, with the lower dose of two milligram. Uh, the, uh, developments after that have not been uh, too encouraging. Uh, so, so Pfizer did this oral surveillance study for tofacitinib, which uh, again showed uh, a slight signal for VTE uh, at the higher dose, at the 10 milligram uh, BID dose. And so they actually were um, uh, forced to convert everybody who received the 10 milligram dose to five milligram because of that. And so the oral surveillance trial is, is complete. They have the headline findings, the top line findings, they were recently released where it doesn't say anything about the VTE, but it was a slight signal uh, for cardiovascular events overall. Um, and, and, and cancer. So it's it, the safety of JAK inhibitors is on, is on many people's, people's mind. And um, as a drug class, I mean, it's really appealing, right? Because for many years, rheumatoid uh, arthritis patients did not have any uh, sort of easy to take disease modifying medication and, and JAK inhibitors come along, uh, easy to swallow pills. But then the safety issues is, uh, mount uh, uh, one after another, so that that led us to really uh, look at look closely at the data uh, that we have accumulated based on patient experiences over the over the six or seven years that that Tofa has been marketed in the U.S. And so that's why we were really interested uh, in in looking at this question um, to. Uh, definitively uh, rule out or rule in uh, a signal that has been observed. Excellent, Excellent. because uh, to be fair, the oral surveillance hasn't been peer reviewed and published yet. And uh, we're, you know, we're very keen to see that because press releases are press releases and, and uh, we need to see the data. I've got a sneaky suspicion it'll be more than just mason malignancy. There'll be some serious infection and some hospitalization. So we really do need to see that it's critical. And just before we get into your methods, um, Philip Meese published the VTE rate across all the TOFA studies out to 10 years and claimed there was no signal. Um, do you think that's because the people at risk have already dropped out or because um, in clinical trials, only well people with very few comorbid comorbidities go into those studies? Uh, yeah, so either of those or the third explanation, which is that there really is no risk when you look at the smaller dose or the lower dose, 5 milligram BID dose, which is exclusively used so far uh, for rheumatoid arthritis in the US and all, all over the world. The 10 milligram dose is actually really interesting. So as, as you probably know very well, uh, this was only marketed or is only marketed for uh, ulcerative colitis, the second indication. Um, and so in the trials, so outside of the oral surveillance trial, I don't think rheumatoid arthritis patients are treated with 10 milligram dose for TOFA. So they have only been exposed to five milligram dose even in the trials. Uh, and when you look at this, this uh, analysis that, that you mentioned, the event rates are really low. And then these event rates are low, it's really, 
difficult to conclude anything from the trial data because they are uh, limited in, in both uh, number of okay. patients as well as time. So. Excellent, excellent. So tell us a little bit about the methods, how you went about doing this study. Yeah, so we used three uh, large population-based data sources from the US, uh, two of them, so these are insurance claims records, uh, two of the databases cover patients uh, who have commercial insurance claims or commercial insurance programs, and then one uh, large federal insurance program, which is the Medicare, which covers everybody over the age of 65 in the US. So we use these uh, uh, insurance claims records to identify patients with rheumatoid arthritis who had been um, initiated either tofacitinib or as a comparison, uh, a TNF inhibitor, which are uh, widely used first-line treatments. And prior to that, the, the um, cohort entry, uh, we made sure that they did not have any exposure to any other biologic just to make the population more homogeneous and comparable. Um, and once, they, once we identify their treatment initiation, we look out for the signal of or the outcome of interest, which is the venous thromboembolism. Um, and in the primary analysis, we restricted this to uh, venous thromboembolism events that uh, were uh, diagnosed within a hospital because we uh, feel slightly more confident about the um, outcome definition there being, being high, high positive predictive value if it's in a hospital uh, because with the... Uh, 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 claims, insurance claims, one of the limitations is that there is no event adjudication. So we, we need to be more specific in, sure. in definitions. In a, in a secondary analysis. Is that a possible, is that possible that in the US, and I don't, sometimes we do it here, they're treated as outpatients with some uh, anticoagulation and don't get to hospital. Is it likely that you missed many for that reason? Or is that not really done in the US? It is done in the US, especially uh, if it is a DVT, it is, it is frequently managed outpatient. And so in a secondary analysis, we actually included both inpatient and outpatient events um, and results did not change, so. Um, okay, so that's reassuring. So can I, I'm not sure if you know all the numbers, but before we look at the paper, can you give us a feel for what would be the expected VTE rate in an RA population yeah. just on steroids and methotrexate, just on a TNF, like the British Registry published some data, and then we can kind of get a feel for what TOFA does or doesn't do. Right. So over the over the years, a number of people have tried to quantify the risk of VTE, which is, uh, which is high in inflammatory conditions uh, like RA. And so overall, um, uh, what we have seen in, in, in papers is uh, around... Um, uh, half to one person point, uh, meaning that uh, if you follow out 100, pe 100 people, 100 patients for a year, you would probably get one or um, less than one event. Half so to one. Yeah. I think it's, it's not uh, it's not that frequent to begin with, um, but uh, higher than general population because the condition is inflammatory. And for some other inflammatory condition like inflammatory bowel disease, they actually slightly higher than that, um, for which again, TOFA and TNFs are used as well. So, uh, but for RA, it's about half to 1% point. And I saw the British Society published their numbers. It was 0.6 to 0.8 per 100 patient years in something like 14,000 TNF patients. So, that's a feel for what the background is. So tell us um, anything we should know about these um, Medicare and these insurance things. There's nothing special about them, different. They, they're a good representation of the population. 
Yes, across the three, it's a good representation of the population, although I would mention that you would not see uh, patients with low, lower socioeconomic background in this uh, in any of these databases, because in the US, the insurance is tied closely to your employment. Uh, and so the two of the databases that we used, Optum and Truven, both represent people who are likely working or their spouses, um, uh, because their employer provides for for their uh, insurance. And the Medicare is, is uh, more comprehensive where if you turn uh, uh, the age of 65, you, you are qualified for that program. And so that's more comprehensive uh, uh, across, across the US. But other than that, I think uh, uh, the, the, these data sources across the three are, are population representative. Excellent. And the key inclusion exclusions, there was nothing uh, that would have eliminated patients at risk or anything? So we actually did uh, have some inclusion criteria which may have done this, uh, but that is to ensure again homogeneity of the population because here we are very much concerned about treatment selection and we need to be um, uh, assured that, that that's not explaining the results. So to do that, we excluded patients with cancer, uh, which is a big risk factor for VTE, uh, and patients who already have uh, 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 had an event for VTE. And the reason for doing that is that um, when you have these types of patients uh, which have a higher risk of the event of interest that you're interested in, um, and if that is somehow also playing into treatment selection, it's uh, likely to bias your treatment results. So in other words, people or physicians may sort of channel away from the treatment that they think may have an association with this event. So to homogenize the population, we excluded these two key sort of categories of, of patients. Uh, and so other no, than that, no history of VTE were allowed in. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, and then we uh, restricted to rheumatoid arthritis uh, only. We, we, we did not look at IBD. Fair enough. So any special characteristics of the population other than the Medicare was older than the other two? Right. So Medicare was older. I think the average age was more than 70 uh, by design uh, because that's the population it covers. Uh, the commercial insurance claims patients had, uh, I think, in the mid-50s, mid their average age was mid-50s. Um, and Medicare patients were also slightly, um, had, had a higher burden of comorbid conditions like diabetes or, or ischemic heart disease and things like that. Uh, which is Interesting that up to 26% diabetes in that American population. It is, that. yeah. It, 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 it is, it is high and believe it or not, it's increasing. So interesting. <laughs> That's huge. All right. So tell us a little bit about maybe the assessments and maybe some numbers and the findings. Just, and one thing I wasn't quite clear from the paper, on kind of average, how long were people on TOFA in the study, if you know what I mean? How long on TNS? Yeah. So we had on average patients uh, followed for less than a year, and that is reflective of how um, poorly uh, adherent on these treatments patients are in general in, in the routine care settings. Uh, this and we did so we did that um, uh, we did the s treated or poor protocol type of analysis on purpose because uh, for safety events you want to uh, minimize the exposure time misclassification so you want to not follow patients when they are not taking the drug basically so in the primary analysis we restricted uh, the follow up time uh, only to the points uh, or, or up to time point when they had uh, continuous exposure to the drug so on average for tofa i think it was less than a year for tnf around about a year slightly more um uh, and the retention just just out of curiosity what percentage churned off both 
treatments by 12 months? Uh, quite a bit. I would say for two, five, I think it's 40 to 50% would, would be, yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, with, with the newer treatment, one other thing is administrative censoring as well. We stop uh, accruing more data. So maybe it's possible that patients may continue taking the drug, uh, but we just don't see it because we don't have- And TNFs very similar or TNFs? TNF is very similar, slightly higher, slightly higher retention, but, but more or less Not similar. Much. Yeah. So tell us some numbers about, because you looked at very large patient populations with quite large um, you know, exposure. Um, so across the three databases, we had uh, slightly less than, I think, 90,000 patients between the two treatment arms. Uh, for TNF inhibitors, we uh, majority of them were TNF inhibitor users. Uh, it's not surprising because these are uh, very popular, or most widely used treatments. So 80,000 patients, I think, uh, were on TNF inhibitors and uh, 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 6,700 patients on TOFA, which is the number that, um, that, that matters here. Uh, it is... Uh, to date, one of the largest um, uh, study looking at this research question. So across the three databases, we had 6,700 patients on dofacitinib. Um, and on average, as, you, as, we, as we discussed, uh, about a year, uh, slightly less than a year of exposure. So uh, 50, uh, more than 5,000 person years of exposure on dofacitinib, um, we, had, we had availability for. So tell us a bit about your findings, please. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I think I would like to take a step back and, and describe the finding from the previous paper, which uh, again, left us in this limbo of what's going on here. So in the previous paper, it was published in 2019, ANR, um, we had less than 2000 patients. So 1900 TOFA patients uh, against, I think 35,000 or so TNF patients. Uh, in that study, what we saw was that the point estimate for the hazard ratio was 1.33 or some, something uh, similar um, with a lower confidence limit of 0.78 for the hazard ratio. And so there we, what we concluded was that we were not able to sort of definitively rule out a signal. Uh, it, it was possible based on that data that signal may have been there, but we just did, could not um, uh, detect it because of limited statistical power. And so we went uh, into the study uh, with, with the expectation that we will be able to include more more recent data on, on a higher number of patients exposed to tofacitinib uh, and, and will give us a clearer picture. And that's uh, exactly what we saw. And so what in this study, what we saw was that across the three databases, the signal um, or, or the point estimate, the treatment effect estimate uh, stabilized somewhat. So across the three databases, after uh, confounding adjustment, uh, adjustment for many um, patient characteristics, the point estimate that we saw for uh, for tofacitinib versus TNF inhibitors was uh, one 1.13. Uh, and so it moved towards the null with additional uh, uh, data, which is, uh, again, what you would uh, hope to see if there is no true signal uh, is uh, the early data stabilizes a bit, and then you would uh, be able to more confidently say or rule out a large signal at least. Um, so that's what we saw. We did not see any um, uh, clear signal of uh, a harm with tofacitinib in the primary analysis or any of the secondary analysis. So in the secondary analysis, we looked at uh, pulmonary embolism and DVT as separate outcomes. We did not find um, a signal there. Uh, as we mentioned before, we looked at inpatient or outpatient events for VT. We did not find a signal there. And finally, we looked looked at uh, a, a separate analysis, um, ITT, intent to treat analysis, just to um, uh, account for the fact that many pe 
people are um, uh, stopping the treatment. And so it is possible that if, if uh, stopping the treatment is kind of prognostic of uh, adverse events, um, we wanted to uh, look into that as well. But even in the ITT, we did not see any signal. So across the board, we, we saw really stable results uh, showing no hint of an elevated risk for, uh, for VT with, with five milligram BID tofacitinib dose. Um, uh, and another important, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I just wanted to wrap this up by saying that another important um, uh, observation was that the events were relatively infrequent. So even within the 6,700 uh, patients that we have on tofacitinib, we only had uh, 29 events in the primary analysis. So it was uh, it was infrequent and in the range uh, uh, of of what was previously reported in in high population, a half to one percent point. Perfect. I was just going to ask. Um, if you had a fear, given it's only a year study roughly that they're on the drug, yeah. was it, were you able to see that all the events happened in the beginning or they were randomly scattered throughout the 12 months? Yeah. Does longer exposure increase the rare events? Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So, uh, so we we were not able to look into this question specifically. Um, uh, on average, uh, uh, patients were only on the treatment for about eight to nine months. Um, so, we did not uh, conduct a, a, a analysis looking at cumulative dose. Uh, uh, but but that is something really uh, uh, on people's mind as well because if there is a dose effect uh, in terms of uh, how much you are taking at a time, it is possible or biologically plausible that if you have a longer accumulation over a longer period of time, it may it may show up um, uh, as a, as a signal. But we were not able to say anything about that. And what about risk factors? You looked at a number of risk factors. Can you tell us? Um you know, obesity, surgery, age, no prior history allowed in. And COX-2 seems to be an issue, but I couldn't find that in your paper. Yeah, so we uh, approached this from a causal inference framework. So basically our objective here was to um, uh, account for all these factors by balancing those out between the two treatment groups uh, in a way that the only... Uh, difference across the two groups in measured characteristics is the treatment. And so we did not look at the individual contribution of these risk factors to the, the, to the event of uh, VTE uh, because they were balanced out in the analysis. So in both treatment groups, uh, they had uh, similar prevalence or, or, or means uh, for these risk factors. Okay, um, because that's the kind of take home message you might tell the clinician, be careful with this group, that group, whatever. So anything you'd recommend based on a risk factor profile to be careful, which group of patients to be careful? Yeah, so I think based on um, the body results and based on the, the DOFAS and the oral surveillance um, uh, results, uh, the regulators have actually already taken actions or steps to, to do this. So EMA, as you know, um, says that you should only use uh, DOFA for, for older patients if really there's no other option. And then FDA went a similar route, but slightly less sort of strict. Uh, they uh, slapped on a black box uh, uh, for, for VTE if, if you had history of uh, cardiovascular diseases or, or, or other, other risk factors. So I think it's going to be really hard to walk back from that. Um, uh, but overall, I think our study may be useful to reassure uh, uh, clinicians that it, it doesn't seem like a, a huge signal uh, in your typical patients. Uh, if you have a patient 
for whom you think that the underlying risk or uh, uh, probability of these events is high, you, you probably still should avoid um, uh, the tofacitinib, uh, but, but overall, it doesn't seem like a, a huge signal for, for an average patient's patient. All right, so um, let's just be clear about that. There wasn't any particular risk factors that stood out in this study as patient groups to avoid. Yeah, so we don't have to agree with the EMA decision or the FDA decision because I'm yet to be convinced they're evidence-based. Right, right. No, that is true. I think, I, yeah, that is true. So we did not uh, have the power to look at these subgroups specifically because uh, of the limited number of events. Um, so, so that is uh, something that future studies may uh, may need to look into. But, but that so. Our study by design did that somewhat with the Medicare split, right? So all the analysis were done uh, separately in these databases. And so Medicare population is a high risk population. Uh, patients older than 65 and age is, is the, the strongest risk factor and everything else that comes along with that. And even in that database, we did not find a convincing signal. So, so I think based on what we, we did uh, by design, uh, it doesn't seem like a huge signal uh, even among patients who are generally at a high risk for VTE. But again, we had a limited number of events there. Excellent. So any other, any other points or issues you want to bring up um, from your study and your paper? And we'll ask you to... Uh, comment whether you think jack selectivity is going to be beneficial or not beneficial in this area is it a class effect if at all or is it a jack 2 inhibition effect if at all yeah so that that yeah so so those are the the questions uh, unfortunately are are um, still uh, unclear the answers to those are, are still unclear and, and active areas of investigation and with the oral surveillance uh, uh, I think not only this side effect, but the other uh, side effects will be um, rigorously pursued in studies like ours and, and, and others. Uh, but overall, I think uh, the uh, issue or the mechanistic insights into why the risk is higher uh, is not clearly um, outlined. Is it a jack inhibition effect? Is it an off-target effect? Nobody really seems to know the answer to this. Um, the selectivity is another interesting issue. Uh, as, as you know very well, the newer agents are, are more selective, which uh, one would hope that, that uh, they haven't shown any sort of um, uh, particular uh, proclivity for this particular adverse event, the opacitinib trial, um, for example, unlike, unlike Bari, which is, which is jack inhibition across the board. So uh, it is possible, but at this point, it's too soon to know. And I think it's a really important drug class uh, for the reasons we discussed earlier on. So I think uh, safety investigations like this will be really important, uh, not only in rheumatoid arthritis, but also in other um, conditions like, like IBD, for example, where this was uh, yeah more recently approved, but uh, uh, <coughs> highly efficacious treatment. So, And where do you think you'll take this research next? What's your plan? You're moving on to another project or are you going to keep going with this? 
Yeah, so we are closely looking into uh, the other outcomes, uh, the, the cardiovascular outcomes, the MACE outcome, and cancer outcomes uh, for tofacitinib. So, tofacitinib. so we have been closely studying tofacitinib actually for a number of years. Uh, we published uh, the infection paper in Lancet Rheumatology last year, uh, where we, we showed or confirmed the signal for herpes zoster and, and some serious infections as well. Uh, and and uh, uh, this this one is was specific to VT but we are also actively looking into cardiovascular diseases. And there, I think the line of inquiry that we are taking is actually exactly along the lines that you, you were describing. So uh, trying to understand this risk from uh, uh, the, the perspective of whether this risk is differential across different patient groups. I think that's a really key question because if you look at oral surveillance, it was restricted to patients who had aged more than 50 years as well as at least one cardiovascular risk factor. So that's a highly selective subgroup of, of RA population. And uh, we appreciate that this is done to sort of um, maximize or, or minimize the requirement for, for sample size by, by increasing the baseline um, risk of, of RCT uh, trial participants, but that's not uh, the large majority of the RA patients. So looking at this question for, for, for all these safety events, uh, in the overall population is, is an area of our interest and we are looking closely into that. Would it be difficult for you to add Barry and UPA to your ongoing studies? Yeah, so so eventually we will have enough data to study Barry, but the unfortunate, uh, or depending on how you see it, Barry Sydney is not that uh, uh, well uptaken in the market in the US. That's at least that's what we see in the early data. Upasitinib is that's because you're restricted to the two milligram dose. There's very little evidence that that's the right decision. What yeah. about UPA, which must be more Upasitinib seems to be selling well, but it's just too new to to study. Um, and and I think down the road, uh, the, the question that we discussed will be really interesting uh, within class comparisons. Upasitinib versus tofacitinib would be really interesting to look at. Um, we're already seeing switch jack to jack in our population. So um, very interesting uh, moving forward. And I think the jacks are here to stay. And what we need to learn is how to use them the best and the safest. Can you just give us a take home message for the clinician? And we'll thank you very much for your time. Yeah, so the take-home message uh, is that for BTE, for the routinely used 5 milligram BID dose in rheumatoid arthritis, we don't think there is a huge signal uh, based on our uh, updated analysis and, uh, and, and the other data that's, that's, um, that's out there. Um, so I think if you have a patient who is seem to who seems to be doing well on TOFA and doesn't have any additional risk factors, I think the um, uh, probably the appropriate thing to do would be to monitor closely, but, but not sort of uh, shy away from this treatment because if this is really something that, that, uh, that, that is shown to work uh, well and, and, and really um, um, uh, convenient for patients. So overall for BTE, I, I think we, we can somewhat confidently say that that doesn't seem to be a big signal there. So thank you again for your time. We greatly appreciate this is very critically important um, issue for all practicing clinicians. In Australia, at least, the JAKs are up to 20, 25% of the market in RA, with one in three MTXIR going straight to a JAK, one in three TNFIR going to a JAK. So clearly, we'd love to know when you keep following these patients, bigger numbers, longer period of time, 
if you can determine whether cumulative dose has an effect and if you can give us some risk factor information, that would be tremendously helpful moving forward. This has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you'll get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Tell your friends that uh, we interview very interesting people with very important papers and let us know what you think. We'd love some feedback. So thank you very much. We thank you very much, Dr. Desai. Thank you for having me.